grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. Happy Monday. Hope everybody had a great weekend. I know I had a pretty good weekend. It wasn't too bad. Not too bad. Very hot, though. We stopped out at 108 yesterday. Incredible. Uh, just a word of warning, you may hear a noise in here. Uh, I have my little old dog in here. He's 16 years old. He's a he's a rat terrier. And uh, he was having a hard time the last three days with the heat. I don't have any air conditioning out in my out in my living room. So, I mean, he was really, really struggling the, the past two or three days. So, I thought I'd make him a space in here because this is, the old, this is the room that has the AC. And I thought I'd make him a space in here. And he could come in here and lay down. And I brought him in here at about, about 2.30. 2 to 3, 3 o'clock, and he's been sleeping really sound ever since. So he might wake up, and you might hear him you know, moving around, or sometimes he'll cry out because he's 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 old. He forgets where he's at, so sometimes he'll cry out. But don't stress, it's just him. It's just him. And if I happen to look over there like I'm doing right now, that's because I'm checking him out. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, which means we can get to you no matter where you're at. Now, it might take us a while. People don't realize California. California's got everything. California's got mountains. We got deserts. We got, we, you know, we got oceans. We got the whole ballgame. Lots of farmland, too. So that's why. If it depends on where you're located. If you're in the more rural part, uh, it might take us a couple days to get there, but we will get there. I have sensitives on staff. Excuse me. Sensitives on staff who can phone you. And in, in the majority of the cases, they can calm things down until we can get out there and see exactly what's going on with you, okay? So uh, look us up. We're on Facebook under California Haunts uh, in, my, in my name. And we're on uh, TikTok under California Haunts. We're on Twitter under California Haunts. We're on Twitch under Cal Haunts. And Instagram, you can find me under Ghosty Gal. And that's all lowercase. So that being said, yeah. Welcome to tonight's show. It's going to be an interesting show, my guest tonight. What a story he has to tell. And um, I really admire him for going through what he did but and, and coming out, you know, a normal person because of the stuff he went through. So it's, it's going to be an interesting night. Quick announcement. I'm going to be teaching a uh, psychic development class one, and I'm going to be teaching a psychic development class two coming up here. So the psychic development class one is for basic psychic development, and I teach you how to open and close that door, that, 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 that spiritual door because once you open it, Anything and everything will come through. So part, you know, part of what I teach is how to open and close that door. I also teach you how to step out of your body and go visit your spirit library. Uh, you, you can learn some stuff about yourself. You can visit your spirit animal and all that good stuff. So that will be the first class. The second class is more advanced where I teach about crystals and, 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 you know, and other stuff. And then we take it to a more advanced state of even uh, working on different versions of, psych, of, of psychic abilities like ESP and things like that. Okay, so that's going to be coming up. Susan, if you're listening, see, I didn't forget. So that's going to be coming up, and I'll be announcing that tonight on the California Haunts Meetup. And then you can check it out over there tomorrow, sorry, tomorrow morning. And sign up for that class, because if, if you think you might have psychic abilities, uh, I can help you out. I can help you out with that. I'm self-taught. I'm a self-taught psychic. Okay, I, I grew up in a haunted house. I, I grew up you know, with, with abilities, but 
I didn't have any help nurturing them, so I, I got to teach myself. Okay, well, my guest tonight, again, uh, his name is Michael. I always got his name right. We know how I am about names, right? Slap, slap, slap. Michael, G- Michael Gagliardi, I hope I'm right with it. Uh, he has a unique childhood and teen years to talk about. Uh, you know, we always hear of, the, of these demonic possession stories, and it's it's, it's always, you know, a kid, you, you know, like a woman or something that you know that that that's possessed, or, or somebody's daughter is possessed, you know, or like Emily Rose, right? You know, things like that. We never hear of somebody that has it for most of their life that that's possessed for most of their life. And Michael's mother was, I don't even know, Michael's mother, and all that Michael tells you. Sorry, I'm not going to screw this up. But uh, Michael has a unique story to tell. So I'm going to bring him in, okay? Let's do this. Let's do this. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Um, I'm doing all right. We've 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 got your beat here. It's 120 here in the Coachella Whoa. Valley. <laughs> Yikes. No, 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 no. I'm lucky because I have this dog in here and then I have an Australian Kelpie. But she grew up... Um, you know, learning how to be a working dog in the heat out just outside Bakersfield in, in, in Parkfield. So to her, being in there with no AC is nothing. I mean, she, she just lays down and she doesn't care. But, I mean, it can get bad. 120? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was in Arizona one time. Uh, I flew into Arizona late one night. And I never even thought about it. Yeah, because I know it stays hot here. It'll, it'll, it'll go down to the, like that, that low 90s here at night. I walked out of that airport that I was going to die. You know? So I... In a way, I envy you because it's eternal sunshine where you're at. Because I have friends that live down in that area, but on the other hand, I'm not a heat person. I have to. I gotta have my AC. Well, it's a dry heat, so. <laughs> There's a difference too. There's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. It, sometimes we get the monsoon season coming in uh, during August, and it can be 70% humidity and 118 degrees, which is just absolute misery. But uh, not very often. It's it's pretty dry. We we usually are around seven percent humidity, so it's mm-hmm. extremely dry. Oh yeah, that's nice. That's very nice. So tell me about you, sir. Well, it's a it's a long story. In fact, um, I I've you know forty five years of have passed by, come and gone, and. And uh, I wouldn't even be talking about it if it weren't uh, if it weren't for COVID. COVID was kind of the thing that uh, gave me the time to write my experiences. And um, and in fact, when I was write when I was writing the book, it took me about a I don't know nine months nine months to a year somewhere in there. And I wrote it actually for my family for my my kids because I've got. Uh, 30 year old girls they're in their 30s uh-huh. and they have get they've got kids but they've got young kids and you know we were never able to talk about it because you know when they were little you you know it's just not something you talk about to them but when they became older they had children of their own mm-hmm. and it was hard to find time so i said you know what you know you got little kids we never have time i'm just going to write a book i'll write a, it wasn't really going to be a book it was just i was going to write write my my memoirs basically right. of, of growing up and then you can read it whenever you want right and as i was uh as i was going through the process um you know, my girls kept asking me you know um 
how, how's it going? How's the writing going? I said, yeah, it's going good. It's going good. You know, I just, I said, there's a lot, there's a lot to write down. In fact, the book that when it finally came out, it's about 50% shorter than the actual, it was at 50% of it. It was edited out. Wow. And there's stuff that I didn't even put in because it was too disturbing mm -hmm. to just disturbing you know, and there's stuff that even my wife to to this day doesn't know because I just don't want to go there. But I, they told me, my kids told me at one point when I was getting close to the end that, you know, I should put it out, you know, because I had told them, you know, I wish there was somebody that could have rescued me from my experience, you know, when I was a kid. I desperately wanted out, but you know, uh, you know, you're a kid. You know what? You have no power. You have no resources. You have nothing. You're 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 stuck. Right. And um, and I said, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that that weighed a lot on me. But it wasn't till I was watching. Um, I was in the middle of reading uh, of you know writing the book. I think I was like three quarters of the way down done. Maybe almost done. No, no, I was done. I was done. It was a couple of months after that because COVID went so long. Uh, I ended up watching a documentary series uh, called um, Hostage to the Devil. <clears throat> and it was about uh, <clears throat> Father Malachi Martin and his experiences. And uh, I watched that and, um, I, you know, I said to myself, you know, wow, the producer who, who did that movie was, you know, he didn't come across as a, as a believer or, you know, he had this neutral persona about him and he was you know he was compassionate about you know people's experiences and i thought hey you know what i'll just run it up the flagpole I'll, I'll try and get a hold of him and and see what he thinks because at this point i really didn't want to go public with it because i didn't want i didn't want re the rejection you know because it's so sensational it, it's probably the craziest story anyone's ever going to hear and you know it you know, I just didn't want to get in, you know, into that kettle, you know, and having people contacting me. So, oh, you're doing it to sell books. And I couldn't care less about the books. You know, I couldn't mm -hmm. care less about that. I put it out there for the reasons I put it out there, you know, mainly for my kids. And but, you know, finally, you know, I sent I sent uh, this guy named Marty Stalker, who was um, the producer for Hostage to the Devil, the documentary. And he lives in Belfast. And I sent him a quick email. Uh, maybe six or seven days, he got back to me and said, um, yeah, Michael, send me the manuscript. You know, I thought, okay, I'll send him the manuscript. Uh, you know, I, I thought, oh, I'll probably never hear from him again. That's fine, you know. And I, I think I sent it to him on a Friday, and he contacted me on Monday. And he said, wow, Michael, that's, you know, one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. And then... Uh, you know, I began, we began, our, you know, our relationship via the internet and, you know, we were talking back and forth and uh, he said, man, you got to go, you got to go public with this, man, because there's so many people that, you know, that don't believe in this stuff. And, and, you know, that, that was the whole reason why I didn't want to put it out there in the first place, you know, because it is so sensational and I didn't want people, you know, I just didn't want the attention. That's all. I'm not, right, right, right. I'm not a person that wants attention. Right. So after talking to him, I, I kind of like that kind of cemented the deal. And then 
and then I went public with it. And, uh, you know, um, the easiest thing I could do was just to, you know, upload it to uh, Amazon, you know, as a digital book. So that's what I did. I never made any books. You know, I never made soft copies or hard copies or anything like that because I just didn't care. I, you know, I was like, you know, that part of my life is over and, you know, I'm, I'm tired, you know, but as you know, I, I got my first interview and started talking about it. And then, you know, people started coming out of the woodwork and, and, you know, they were getting a hold of me and, and being very compassionate you know, mm -hmm. with me and having, I'm not going to say similar stories, but a lot of people were contacting me and saying, yeah, yeah, I totally believe you. I totally believe you. And that in itself was a therapy, you know, because, you know, I, nothing was ever brought up even in my town where it happened. I mean, it happened in a small, small Canadian town in Northern Ontario. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of hidden and suppressed by the authorities and the 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 hospital and the you know <laughs> the mental institution and all this kind of stuff and you know so I, I really never never gave it any value and it wasn't until I was you know probably in my in my 20s where I started falling apart you know as a human being you know mentally emotionally mm -hmm. and physically and I was like what is wrong with me and I had no idea that I was suffering from severe PTSD. I mean, I didn't go through puberty till I was 21. Wow. I mean, that's, that's like, you know, because it changed my body chemistry so terribly bad from this long exposure to traumatic events, you know? And I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. It took me a long time to figure out, God, what, so what I, because, you know, I thought that what I went through, I knew it wasn't normal, but I didn't think that it was, you know, as crazy because I was a kid, you right. know, when you're a kid, you suppress things, you, uh, it's not as bad as you think it is, but I had all these problems, all these mental and emotional problems. I couldn't even talk on the phone. I was so socially inept, you know, and, and even to this day, I, I still, you know, I don't like li loud you know, I don't like crowds. I don't like right. uh, getting together with, you know, massive amounts of people. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm, I'm, uh, I'm socially much better, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, even to this day, I have severe PTSD and, and, you know, I, I'm going to comment on your comment that you said that I came out pretty normal. Well, it seems like that on the outside, okay. but, uh, and I think I, I had an interview with George Nori last week and he said, well, you know, it sounds like you've come out pretty normal. That's far from the, far from the truth. I mean, it may seem like that on the outside, but, uh, you know, just like a child, I learned to, I learned to deal with it. I mean, we all have to live in this world. We all have to make money. You know, I, I didn't want to be this, you know, this poster child for welfare. Right, <laughs> you know, right. I wanted to do things on my, on my own and, 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 you know, but still, it's extremely difficult to for me to wake up in the morning to go to sleep at night. It's understandable. I mean, as a ghost hunter for 19 years, you know, we, we go out to somebody's house and may, maybe it's something bad that's happening and we're able to do a cleansing and then we have to turn around to, to them and go, now you're not supposed to think about this ever again because you might draw it back in. But that's just human nature. 
it's human nature to look at the corner wherever this thing was and think, oh, I wonder if it's still looking around or whatever. So I can understand you. You know, on the outside, you're, you're this, and on the inside, you still got all those memories, and, and there's a lot of hurt there. And you know, there's certain triggers that you're going to run into throughout the day and whatnot that, that, that bring memories back. Yeah, I mean, you know, my PTSD is so bad that, you know, it affects me every day. Uh, mm -hmm. Three, four times during the day, my face starts to go numb. And by nighttime, when my medication wears out, my face goes really numb, feels like pins and needles. And then I start shaking really, really bad inside, you know, until my medication knocks me out. And then I wake up in the morning with my face like pins and needles, severe pain. And that's what wakes me up in the morning, you know, is this this facial paralysis kind of with all these numbing needles and pains and, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, and then, you know, once my day begins, you know, it, you know, once the meds start kicking in, you know, helping right. giving me a window of opportunity to, you know, be alive <laughs> and be, you know, somewhat normal, I can carry on pretty, pretty normal stuff. I, I just have to keep the stress really low, uh -huh. you know, because I pass out. I, my my body can't take that and like i said you know the ptsd has has morphed over the years from my 20s mm -hmm. to my 30s to my 40s and now in my 50s it, it's taken on this thing where i just can't deal with stress i'll pass out i'll just fall down and clap my system just shuts off and i'll fall down i've hit my head several times and it always happens late at night you know mm -hmm. but uh you know it's just one of the uh one one of the results of you know prolonged exposure to you know severe terror and trauma. Uh, I think now, probably by now everybody wants to know what what happened, right? Exactly. <laughs> How old were you when you realized something was wrong with your mother? Well, we were living in Mississauga at the time, which is uh, a borough in Canada. We have boroughs, you know, in Toronto, just like they do in New York City, right? New Orleans, Bronx, yeah. Queens, all that kind of stuff. And Mississauga was one of them, and. I was about three years old, three and a half years old. And, and uh, the, really the beginning of it was, you know, I remember, uh, you know, going, going to the table, you know, my mother would call me to the table, you know, for lunch as a kid. And I would always have this like star soup, you know, that, the, you know, because we're Italian and Italian kids always get this, you know, it's like a pasta fazule, like star soup, you know, for, you know, American children or alphabet soup, whatever, you know. Sure. And, uh, you know, I came to the table and it wasn't there. And she came up behind me and dumped the whole pot scalding hot all down my shoulder. Wow. And then, uh, you know, she called a taxi. We went to the doctors. She never consoled me. She never said a word. And I remember the trip there. I don't remember the doctor appointment, mm -hmm. but I remember going home. And that's when I had this. Uh, that was the beginning of me being very hypervigilant about my mother looking at her a different way. She never comforted me. She never, she never touched me, never held me. She was this woman who was completely aloof. You know, I existed, but she was like, you know, I'm not gonna say in a trance at that point, right. but just existing, you know, and I was basically orbiting around her, you know, in her space. Mm -hmm. And she somewhat took care of me, but by the time we, we ended up moving, you know, about 120 miles away to this very isolated little town called Meaford, Ontario, Canada, up by Georgian Bay. It was about 120 miles away from Toronto, 
So my dad was, we were living in Toronto. My dad was working in Toronto. And then all of a sudden we move 120 miles away. And then my dad drives all the way back down to Toronto to stay there during the week to work. And then comes back on the weekend. And then from there, I started kindergarten and then things just started to escalate from there. She, you know, she began, you know, talking, talking to herself. It, it began very, very slowly. You know, she began talking to herself and, you know, and this would go on all day. Mm-hmm. She was talking to herself, whistling to herself, you know, in trance-like states, just like, hey, is anybody there? You know, kind of deal, you know, and, and, uh, you know, she she became very disconnected. Well, disconnected for ever since I can remember. I don't remember ever having a conversation with her. And that sounds bizarre, but it's right. true. And, uh, you know, as the years started go on, going on, it became more, it became more darker. You know, she began, you know, speaking in different voices, very manly voices, arguing, arguing voices back and forth in different languages and and you know, stomping around the house slamming doors screaming for no apparent reason and you know this went on it went on every waking minute and i don't remember it ever being any different until it started getting worse and then one day when i was at school i think maybe i was in fifth grade and this is where everything kind of took a turn for the worst. Uh, somebody knocked on our homeroom door and there was a policeman there, a couple of, you know, people of authority. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they motioned me to come outside, to come outside the classroom. So I got outside the classroom and uh, my, the police officer said, your neighbor is going to drive you home. So I get in the car with my neighbor and, you know, we're driving and I'm like, I, you know, what's going on? You know, I'm fifth probably fifth grade and uh, fourth grade, something like that. And he goes, well, there's, there's been, there's been uh, um, an incident. And uh, he said, your mother tried to kill your sister with a butcher knife. Wow. And I wasn't very, uh, I wasn't very shocked by that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I got home, uh, apparently they had taken my mother, the mental institution had been there. The police were there. They put her in a straitjacket and they took her away. And then what I heard from my sister later on is that uh, she, my mother was in the kitchen, my sister was in the living room. And because that morning I forgot to, you know, we have mud rooms in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just little little lobbies where you take your shoes off. It's a room before you, you enter the house. So, you know, the slush and all that stuff stays in that room and doesn't come into the living room. I had left the doors open to the mud room and the door outside. And my sister told me if I had not um, left those open, that uh, she wouldn't be around today because she came from the kitchen, came running after with a knife. And, and uh, she said that she was she was a witch and that she, they told her she's got to die. So that, that was the incident that, wow, OK. And my neighbors in the neighborhood, they all witnessed it because she was chasing her around our car with a butcher knife trying to kill her. So that's how all that started. And then, of course, they took her away. They took her to a mental, a local mental institution. And then three months later, they bring her back. They release her. And we're like, 
how can they possibly release her? She tried to commit murder of minors in the house, mm -hmm. you know, and now they're, you know, now they're bringing her back. How is that possible? You know, so my sister, who was already living for years in her room with a padlock on her door, <laughs> you know, I slept, I slept with, uh, this had been going on for years. I slept with my armoire, you know, my big dresser drawer. Right. And I took all, I took all my clothes out and I weighted it down with bricks. And then every night I would press it up against the door and then sleep with a hockey stick in a fetal position in my room. And, you know, I'd stay up till one o'clock in the morning just waiting because she always tried to get in my room every night. She'd, she'd shake the door, you know, to see if she could get in. But, and she'd find that, you know, the dresser was up against, she couldn't get in, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, that was already going on for years that we were living like that. And, uh, it got so bad, you know, my sister, she, she couldn't take it anymore. When she found out she was coming home, she left and moved a hundred back down to Toronto to stay with my grandmother. So I'm the only one left in the house. <laughs> so wow. now when she, she comes back, things are getting really bad. She, she is 10 times worse now than she was when she left. So, I don't know what happened at the mental institution, but when I was doing research for my book, I actually called the mental institution there, which is now a department of the hospital there in Owen Sound. And I called them and I said, hey, I'm, I'm looking for records for you know, this woman. And I gave her my mother's name. And they said, they said okay, sure. It's, it's like $35. And I'm like, okay, fine. And, uh, and she goes, well, what date are we looking at? And I said, oh, it would have been, you know, mid-70s to early 80s. Oh, we don't keep that information. All that stuff gets burned. And she goes, oh, just for giggles, let me, let, me, let me just take a look. What's her name? And I'm hearing her, you know, clacking away. Mm -hmm. And she goes, hmm, that's odd. Her records are archived off campus. So... I, I said to them, I said to them, okay, uh, can you call me back when you get those records? She says, yeah, I'll have them within a couple of days and then I'll send them to you. So a couple of days go by, a week goes by and I don't hear her and I, I call back and I didn't, I forgot to take down the lady's name, mm -hmm. but I, I got somebody else and in archives and I asked for those records uh, and oh no, they don't exist. They don't exist and i said well i just talked to a lady they said they're archived off oh no no well she was wrong who was that lady and i said well i don't remember so you know that was that was odd but uh -huh. um getting back to you know when she came back after the first incident when she when she had come back like i said she was 10 times worse she was eating everything in the house she became morbidly obese and she was only four foot eleven she was a very short woman, very short woman. And she was eating everything in the house like an animal. So much so that, you know, I was starving. So I, start, I started stealing food from gardens and kids' lunches at school. And they never caught me. But I did that for quite a number of years. And we, we had to put uh, my dad, you know, whatever food we did have, we kept in a freezer downstairs because we had a basement. And my dad would put a chain, a big thick chain on, on the, on the, uh, on the freezer and with a lock on it. So one day I was coming home 
you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing and shortening up the story, sure, but sure, sure, sure. No problem. Yeah. I, I mean, there's horrible things going on 12 hours a day every, and at night it's that screaming and banging in the house and knocking and scratching and things flying around the room and her room smashing. And I, I mean, this is what's going on, but you know, for sake of time, right. Um, I'm, at this point, I'm about 16 years old and, and I'm coming home. It was in the summer and we have, uh, there's two ways into our basement, one from outside and one from inside. And I come home, get off my bike, go downstairs into the basement. And I see her with a, with a hacksaw trying to cut the chain off, off the freezer. And the only thing I could think of was, was yell, Hey, and when I yelled, hey, to her, she was still bent over and she just looked at me through her hair. Her hair was, you know, down to here, her bangs, you know, they, she was very, very unkept. And she just growled at me. And, you know, she growled at me in a voice that was not her own, which really tripped me out. And she threw down the hacksaw and then ran upstairs. And I ran after her, but she beat me up the stairs. And once again, I told you she was morbidly obese and like 4'11". You know, normally she walked very slow. It was, you know, more like a waddle, you know, than walking. But she beat me up the stairs and she went into her room and slammed the door. And, you know, I don't know how to explain it, but by that time in my life, I was losing my mind being there. I mean... I was, you know, inviting myself over to other kids' houses to stay the night. Um, when it was warm outside, sometimes I would sleep in the park because I just didn't want to go home. I was, I was terrified, you know. I, I mean, it, it was mental abuse to the power of 10, right. you know, and I just couldn't take it. I mean, I, soon my mother would be, just let me, let me give you a, her daily routine at this time. During the daytime, she would sit in this chair that she actually bottomed out because she was so morbidly obese. She rank like you wouldn't believe. She smelled so terribly bad. All her teeth were broken, even her molars. All her molars, every one of her teeth were broken. She was only 46 years old. And I would walk by her and she would wag her tongue at me and go eh, like this at me with this like mute voice. And I could see her tongue. It was all chewed up on both sides. It was all like, like a bread knife, like mm -hmm. all serrated, you know, whether she was chewing it on her broken teeth, I don't know, but she never complained about any of this, you know, and she would be sitting in this chair, singing, laughing, screaming, going from voice to voice, changing back and forth, and then answering herself with a different voice, like within a split second. And then she was hitting herself with a log across the chest until she was bloody. And sometimes I would leave the house. She'd be hitting herself. I'd leave in the morning and I'd come in the driveway. You know, the windows would be open at the house. And I'd come in the driveway and I could hear the pounding from outside from her hitting herself in her chest. And I would, I would come inside and she, there she was, she hitting herself in the chest and drop deading her leg. She would lift her leg up and drop dead and then lift it up and drop it while she was hitting herself. And then, you know, and, and, and talking and talking and talking, you know, you know, with all these crazy voices and, 
you know, and I was losing my mind at that point. I was beginning to fail school, you know, and I was really, I was really having a hard time, you know, functioning. And I had no clue that, you know, I was just a kid. I grew up in this, right. you know, I hadn't, I had no idea it was wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, nobody, the neighbors, they called the police a hundred times on her because she would go to their houses, knock on their doors. And then when they came to the door, she'd go, I'm going to cut your head off, you know, and then they, you know, she'd walk away. And this happened all the time. The police were at our house all the time, you know, and nothing ever happened except when they tried to, to, to kill her. So or when she tried to kill my sister, but let me go back to the story with, you know, when I chased her up the, up the, up the stairs after, you know, she had the hacksaw. Mm-hmm. Th- this was the defining moment for me. I chased her. She got into her room. She closed the door. She was pressing on the door so hard that the door bowed up. It was all bowed out right to me. It was bowed out. And I was like, and I could hear her growling behind the door. She was growling behind the door. And I tried to move the doorknob. And I don't know how to explain this, but I was drawn to this. I was like, it's at that point, I was contemplating either killing her or she was going to kill me. That's what I thought my reality was as a teenager at that time. This is what's going to happen to me. It's going to be me or it's going to be her. So I wanted to end it right there. And I don't know why that was that happened at that moment because I was terrified, but it sucked me into it. So she's holding the doorknob and I'm hearing her breathing and growling and that the door's all bowed up and I'm trying to move the doorknob and I can't move the doorknob. So I just stand there and I wait for a second and I kind of wring my hands like this. And then all of a sudden the bow in the door goes back. And then I grab the doorknob and I notice that it's loose. So I whip open the door and I see her standing there. And just for this split second, we're looking eye to eye, maybe two feet apart. And uh, her eyes are just like black marbles. There's no pupil. There's no nothing. And, I, you know, and that sounds just so stupid and cliche, like a stupid movie. But that's exactly how it was. I can't explain it any other way. Is that they were just like black marbles. And she growled at me in this voice. And then she lunged at me. And when she lunged at me, I went tearing down the, you know, down the hallway and out the door. And then I heard her go back into her room and slam the door so hard that all the windows like they they shuddered really hard and i'm out on the driveway and i'm going <laughs> and I, by this time i'm in absolute trauma mm-hmm. i can't even say one word i was trying to say just any word and i couldn't find a word and i couldn't say it hmm. so i'm trying to compose myself at this time and I knew that it was, I think it was a Saturday because my father was in town. So I knew where he was. So I reached in the doorway and I got the phone because the phone we had right inside the mudroom. As soon as you walk in, it was right there and had a long cord on it. So I grabbed that and I took it outside and I was trying, you know, it was dial up back then. Right. You know, and I was so shaking so bad. I couldn't dial the phone. It took me like 10 minutes to dial the correct number because you know you just get one wrong and the whole thing's screwed up right 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 and it took me quite a while and then and then uh my father's uh girlfriend answered the answered the phone and i was like <laughs> and she recognized my voice but i still couldn't say a word so 
uh, um, my dad came on the phone really quick. I could hear her yelling, Emmanuel, my father's name. And my dad gets on the phone and I'm still, <laughs> and he says, okay, I'm coming right over. You know, we live in a small town, so he's like a half a mile away. Mm -hmm. So within a couple of minutes, he's there and he comes in the driveway. And, uh, you know, he, I'm trying to explain, but I still can't say anything. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't put a sentence together. So my dad starts walking into the house and he opens the door and then he opens the mudroom door to the living room. The second he steps inside, she's there, grabs him. My dad's five foot eight, five foot eight. And at the time he was probably 170 pounds, five foot eight, 170 pounds, 160 pounds, something like that. She throws him to the ground and begins scraping his face all up and, and growling and, and yelling and screaming and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just watching in terror, you know, because she, threw my dad to the ground. She's only four foot 11, you know? And my dad manages to get up and he runs outside. And then I'm right behind him. I ran outside and then my mom slams the door again with such force that all the windows again begin to shudder back and forth. Like, like I thought they were gonna pulsate and, and smash and break. It was with such force. So we're standing in the driveway. My dad, that's the first time in my life I saw him traumatized. We never said a word. And for a couple of minutes, he gained his composure. And then he went inside and he called the police. And then within, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, the police and the mental institution people were there. You know, the proverbial in the 1970s and 80s, you know, guys in the white, the white coats. Yeah. They all show up and then they go inside they go inside and they take my mother and put her in a straitjacket and then she's gone again and they take her away, you know? And the very interesting thing about, about this is my dad and I never talked about that incident and we still haven't to this day, which is really weird. And even weirder is the fact that three months later, they sent her back home. Wow. Now, did you ever find out how she became possessed or, or, or anything like that? Was yeah. she messing with dark stuff or what, what, what was going on? Yes, there? she was. Um, um, before I was born, uh, her father died in a terrible accident. From what I'm told, she, my mother adored my father or her father. Mm -hmm. And his name was Michele, which is Michael in Italian. And that's how I got my name. I was named after my grandfather. So... My mother just adored him and he died a terrible accident. Uh, from what I understand, he was, uh, you know, drunk one night and, you know, crossing railroad tracks, fell down, the train came over, cut his legs off and he hemorrhaged to death. And, you know, where we come from in Toronto, back in those days, you know, the train go right through your backyard. There's no fences, there's no nothing, you know, it's just, you know, common sense. Don't stand in front of the train, right. you know. So back in those days, that's how it was, apparently. So that's how he died. And my mother was so heartbroken that her sister, who was younger, her sister was, was involved in occultism. And I remember as a child being in my bedroom and listening to them talking, you know, at the dining room table, whatever, talking about mm -hmm. seances. I never knew what that meant. Mm -hmm. It took me 
you know, a couple decades before I, I recalled that. I go, oh my gosh, I remember them talking about that. But my my sis, my mother's sister, who is my aunt, was definitely involved in the occult. And I believe, you know, it was in the, during the 70s. I believe that they did a seance because my mother missed my her father so incredibly much. And so did my grandmother. My grandmother was so heartbroken. Apparently, he was just a really terrific guy. You know, and they were heartbroken, you know, and I think they tried to try to open a door to, you know, communicate with their father, would have been their father. And I think that's where the doorway was let in, because from my timeline, from talking to other people, you know, in my family, that is around the time that things started to get weird, that she became very isolated. You know, it started very, very, mm -hmm. very, very quietly. You know, she became isolated, didn't talk a whole lot, didn't go out with her friends, didn't do things, and then isolation from the family. And then she began to hear voices and began to see things. She was always hearing voices, telling her to do things, wicked things. And, mm -hmm. and then it just progressed to where it was at, you know, but... Uh, interesting thing though the first time when i left canada as a 19 year old and i you know the thing was over i left my mother had died actually the day that i left i went to california um my first time returning some 16 17 years later i found out that my mother's sister you know her daughter which was my cousin who, you know, we would pal around when we were very little, when we lived in Toronto, she ended up hanging herself in the basement and she had three kids. And she was part of the family that delved into cultism. So, you know, there was definitely, you know, wicked ties in both sides of the family, you know, that were, uh, uh, you know, disturbing and destroying the family unit. You know, I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of questions, so go ahead. <laughs> um, but, but a little bit about your father a little bit and his background, too, because, I mean, obviously they were madly in love at one point, you know, for her to have, to have you, you and your sister. So how did he react when all this started to go down? Well, you know, my, my father, he grew up in the war. He was a refugee when he was little. He saw the fascists trying to shoot his father as mm -hmm. they were running across, because he's from Italy, mm -hmm. and they blew up his house. Uh, they blew up his the family donkey, and all the guts went on all the kids because they were trying to hide from the Nazis. He's got his own PTSD, and my dad was an absentee father for all of my childhood. He was gone. He was either working in Toronto, like I said, we moved right. to this small town, and then he'd He'd sleep in his, his truck and live down in Toronto for five, six days and come up on the weekend and then leave again. So I never saw him. I never mm -hmm. saw him. We never even had a relationship my old time growing up. We, we spoke a handful of words in a year, <laughs> you know? Okay. So, you know, and my dad, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't speak English very well. Yeah. And, you know, he just, and I've talked to some of my cousins and, you know, the Italian generation from that time, from World War II, 
They don't talk about anything. Right. Everything's great in life, you know, no matter how bad it is, everything's good, fine, and nobody talks about anything that's bad. It's like everything's all positive and great. You know, that was that generation, okay. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just weird, you know. But I love yeah. my father. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you would <laughs> You were dealing, I'm not laughing at you, you were dealing with this by night, and then you'd have to go to school the next day. How, I mean, how, how were you in, in school as far as talking to your teachers? There was no one to talk to? Well, I didn't talk to anybody because I didn't think there was anything wrong. Okay. I mean, if nobody at home was saying it was wrong, why should anybody at school think it's wrong? Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, other than the fact that, you know, uh, neighbors were witnessing, you know, attempted murder. Right. You know, and hearing her screaming and, and you know, going up and, and uh, you know, I mean, if somebody knocked on somebody's door and told them they were going to cut their head off, what would that, what does that look like in America in 2023? I mean, yeah. cops are there, you're in, you're in cuffs and you're gone for a psychic evaluation, mm -hmm. right? Right. This happened all the time. The, the local authorities never did anything. They came over, they interviewed us like they always did. They sat us down in all different rooms and they interviewed us. And then they came to, to zero conclusion and went home. I mean, she she lit the house on fire probably seven times. The fire department was there because our house was on fire all the time. I, I mean, this kind of stuff, it went on. They could The neighbors could hear her screaming, you know, and she'd knock on their doors. I mean... I, <laughs> if no one else thought nothing was wrong, why would I think so? Right. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. I never said nothing at school. There was only one time in 10th grade when my homeroom teacher asked if, if everything that was at, at home was okay. And that's because in my 10th grade, like I told you, that was right around the time that I started losing my mind and I didn't know what to do anymore that I was skipping school and, you know, just going places, just, I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, I couldn't focus. So, you know, I couldn't focus on anything, let alone school. So I was signing my own notes at school. I'd bring a note in Michael's absent because uh, he was sick. And then I signed my own name on it. And, you know, after 10 or 12 times, this kind of got suspicious, I guess. And then my homeroom teacher asked me, and she asked me, and I'll give you the dialogue because I remember it clearly. She said, Michael, is everything at home okay? And I said, fine. And she said, okay. And that was the end of it. That was the only probe into my childhood. <laughs> that was the only probe. I mean, I talked to CPS, and, you know, they pulled me aside, and they, they basically told me to run away. You know, because I don't know what they think they were dealing with. I mean, right. after after somebody's witnessed, somebody's a mother is trying to, you know, kill her children and you witnessed it. How does CPS bring that mother back into the into the home? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense at all. It makes was less there, sense to me now. But were there times when she was nice at all or was she just always like, no. This? I never, I never knew her. I never knew her being the nurturing mother. Like for instance, you know, I'm watching Sesame Street and she comes over to me. Hi, honey. You know, I, I love you. You know, you're such a sweet little boy. Kiss on the cheek. I, I never even knew she knew I existed. 
I, I was just uh, like a piece of furniture, you know, and in the in the very beginning, yeah, she fed me some things, but by the time I was five years old, all that ended. I was doing my own laundry at six years old, seven years old. I was washing my own clothes, hanging them up on the line, stealing my own food. I had been doing that for so long. I didn't even know what else to do. I was so good at it, you know, and, and she, there was only two lucid moments when I was in my teens and when my sister left. There was two lucid moments that I remember, and I say this on every interview because they're the only two times I could remember hearing my mother's normal voice, which was, oh, a part when the police would be interviewing her and I could hear her from another way, and she was talking to them like everything was completely normal. <laughs> when I was walking by, when she was doing her, you know, she two times, and they were probably maybe a year apart from each other. She said to me, as I was walking across in her normal speaking voice, they're running up the back of my spine and perching in my head. And then as soon as she finished the word head, she'd go back into these voices and arguing back and forth and back and forth and then screaming and then whistling and singing hymns and songs. And so those, she said that to me twice over two, like I said, about a year, you know, two, two times where she said the exact same thing, you know? So, so whatever this is that had her was smart was was smart enough to take out the cops and figure out CPS. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there the, there obviously was many of them. You know, like we see in the Bible, we see you know legions of mm -hmm. of, of demons. There's usually more than one, and the, the evidence of this was that she was she was talking in so many voices, mm -hmm. and she was arguing with herself. And she'd go for, I could hear the different voices. Like after my sister left, it escalated 10 times worse. I don't know, I, well, I do know what made it worse, but you know, it's like when she went away for the, for the second time and, and came back, it's, it's like what the Bible says about, you know, you know once, once a, a demon has been kicked out, they go around, they wander arid places, you know, and they go, huh, I'm going to return to the, the house that I left. And then they found it swept in in order and they bring back seven more worse than themselves. And that's exactly what happened to her. She was off the charts and I was losing my mind. And I, I thought at one point I was devising a way to kill her because it was going to be me or her. And, you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't know. I, I always had the sense of value in my life that I had no value. So why would anybody care? Why would anybody care at, at school? Why would anybody? I had no value. Nobody fed me. Nobody clothed me. Nobody right. took care of me. You know, so you get this feeling. You don't have to have people tell you you're not a value. You know, mm -hmm. it's actions that speak louder than words, you know, mm -hmm. and I had no value. You know, my sister lived her life locked in her room with a padlock, the great big padlock. And she'd just come out, zip into the kitchen, grab food and go back and then lock herself in again. I never saw her. I mean, I grew up with her, but I never saw her. You know, it's bizarre. I know I think about it now and I'm thinking about, man, if I heard somebody telling this story, I'd be like, that is bonkers. But it's exactly what happened. And 10 times more. There were so many disturbing things that I, I just, you know, 
How did you There's guys, just, uh, how were you able to afford to buy food and stuff? Well, we lived in Canada and we lived in the Niagara Fruit Belt. So, you know, my dad was a fisherman, so we caught a lot of fish. We never went to the grocery store, maybe once every three months. Okay. My dad would go to the grocery store. I mean, there, that was just few and far between, you know, but, you know, we canned, you know, my father canned our garden food. And during the summer, you know, I took, uh, I took vegetables out of the garden. You know, that's interesting because I'm a vegetarian to this day and I eat a lot of raw vegetables, just like when I was a kid. And believe it or not, I have no cavities. <laughs> I'm 56 years old. I have no cavities, which is weird. Very but, lucky. Yeah. And I mean, when I was a kid, I invited myself over to friends' houses so I could, you know, eat lunch. As long as I could get one meal in me, you know, I was good to go, you know, and that's how I thrived. And in Canada, there's food everywhere. I used to tell my wife this. I said, you know, you go out, you go out on the freeway and there's several hundred miles of fence line with, with wild grapes along <laughs> You know, and there's apple trees and wild pears and wild cherries and peaches and, you know, all kinds of food and raspberries and wild gooseberries. And I would go to the river and eat sumac and, you know, whatever berries and apples. I ate a ton of apples because they were everywhere, you know, because we, you know, we grew up in orchard country, right. you know, but uh, that's how I survived and stealing, you know. When you did that, as you talked earlier about, you know, starting to write the book and, and doing research, was there anything in your research that really surprised you? Yeah, the, the one thing that surprised me the most was, but this this was after I, after I wrote the book, mm -hmm. is, you know, I started to, to, to delve into a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of exorcisms, you know, stuff that I could get my hands on where people were actually, actually demon possessed. And I'm not talking about, you know, internet stuff. I'm talking about real documented cases where, you know, so many people knew about it and it was, it was, uh, you know, overwhelming. The evidence was overwhelming. And one of the cases that really struck me, well, they all struck me. They all, were all similar to my mother's, uh -huh. but the one that really struck me was the Annalise Michelle case. And when I heard all the tapes, I think there's about 13 tapes, 13 hours of, uh, of tapes to listen to. There's really 67 of them, but there's about 13 that are, you know, for public mm -hmm. consumption. You know, the the transcripts of the, the demonic entities that are speaking, they, they said the same things my mother said. I heard the same phrases. I heard the same gait in the speech patterns. You know, that's another thing that because I couldn't understand what my mother was saying a lot of the time, you know, it, it made me so like, I got so frustrated that I began to learn languages on my own, you know? So I, I know a little, you know, I, you could dump me off in Germany, France, uh, Italy. Uh, 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 I, I know some Arabic, you know, and I can pick up these languages, you know, because of the experience I had, because I, I was so tired of not understanding what was going on. Mm -hmm. you know but once i heard those tapes i heard speech patterns i heard i'm not going to say dialects but mm -hmm. there's nuances that were so familiar and i i heard sentences that were exactly the same you know and it was mind boggling because the the same hatred and 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 uh disdain 
for human life that that you know were coming out of the mouth of Annalise M Michel were the same kind of things that were coming out of my mother just absolute disdain and hatred you know and, and it was it was probably the case that really opened my eyes to oh my gosh the 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 amount of things that I could like you know my mother's case this case and draw lines across you know yep 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 was kind of mind-boggling and that that kind of really threw me for a loop because you know once once I had left Canada I left Canada at 19 years old and I came to the United States homeless and I came to the Santa Monica Pier and I was homeless on the Santa Monica Pier I just had to get away like I thought I was losing my mind but um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't until I did that, that I was free from all that, but it morphed into something worse. And that's why I had to, to write the book, Devil Take the High Morse Part Two, is because my, my journey through what happened to me, who had just begun, it just begun. Now I was beginning to have nightmares. I had night terrors. I was shaking, waking up in cold sweats, and and here my PTSD began. Now, now, right. as soon as you're out of the fire and you feel you're safe, that's when your body relaxes, and then that's when you have to deal with it because now it starts to react. All the years I grew up to in it, I, I was never, I never had the chance to react. It was always impulse reaction, you know. That's why you hear all these stories about these children getting molested by priests. And, you know, why are you coming out when you're 40? You know, right. it's because at 40, something triggered them. And now they're falling apart, you know, and because that stuff, you know, long periods of traumatic stress, you know, it, it gets it gets buried in you and you have to deal with it sooner or later. You can't pretend it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you just can't. You can't pretend. You know, so it surfaces and it surfaces in very strange ways. And like I said, my PTSD from my 20s to my 30s to my 40s to now my 50s has morphed into all kinds of different things. I went through depression for 10 or 12 years. I was on suicide watch, you know, and then it morphed into manic depression. Well, I was like, hey, 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 what's going on? What's going on? You know, when I was in my 20s, it was manic. You know, it was extremely manic. I was like the guy on, um, like the guy on a beautiful mind, you know. Right. I was re recording license plates and colors and walking into a room, and and knowing who was, you know, immediately who was a a threat to me and positioning myself accordingly, you know, stuff like that. I never even thought about. It. I would just do, you know, instantly do it because of the situation I grew up in. You know, I was like a Spartan. You know, I grew up like a Spartan. You know, I froze in in the winter time because I didn't have clothes that fit me, you know? I never had boots that fit me, you know, jackets that fit me. You know, I never had enough food. I was always starving and hungry and, and you know, stealing. And, and you know, and I, I regret some of the things I did to survive, you know? But uh, I, I didn't know any better, you know? Right, right, right. You, you what know? Is, what did she die of? Or how, did, how, how did she pass? Well... Like I told you, she ate like an animal. Mm -hmm. She was 46 years old, and she died of atherosclerosis, which is the hardening of the arteries. Okay. So basically, she died from overeating. Wow, okay. Yeah, and she died on the day that I left the country. 
because I had been in Canada for, I think it was seven days, eight, seven or eight days. And uh, I left my phone number with a cousin and they ended up tracking me down and they said, yeah, your mother, your mother passed away, you know, and I wasn't surprised at all. But uh, she said that, uh, you know, she was decomposing and the neighbors could smell this horrible odor. And that's how they found her. And they said, yeah, she probably died on this day. Right. So it was the day that I left. So it was kind right. of like a a proverbial, you know, prophetic wringing of the hands. Yes. The work is done here, you know. But you've made a good life for yourself. I mean, despite the PTSD and everything, you're doing really well. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've, I've you know, eked out a career for myself in music. Um, you know, I'm a jazz and flamenco guitar player. I play my own music. And, uh, you know, I probably do about, you know, post pre-COVID, I was doing about 180 performances a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm almost at that level now again at post-COVID. But, uh, yeah, I, it, it's the only thing I can do because, you know, I go play for two hours. I pack up my stuff and I leave. You know, it's as simple as that. I, I cannot maintain like a nine to five job. You know, I've tried it and I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And now in my 50s, my PTSD has morphed and it's getting, I'm losing the battle, so to speak. I mean, I'm, I'm really tired. I'm really tired. I'm, I'm really worn out. And the shaking, you know, comes and goes throughout the daytime as well, you know. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of nervous anxiety where I got to get away, you know, and you can't do that at work, you know, but, you know, the therapy, that's the thing that drew me to music was the therapy of playing mm -hmm. because when I'm playing, you know, I don't, uh, I don't think about those things. It is therapy, you know, you're right. engaged with your mind and your hands and your feet and, you know, and I play, I play rather complicated music, you know, so it's. It's, it's kept me kept me alive and made me able to sustain a living for myself. So understood. Uh, let me ask you this real quick before we before I send you off. When you started getting PTSD and you went to psychologists and you you were you, you were able to tell them what you went through, did they believe you at first? Well, <laughs> I probably went to seven or eight of them, and uh -huh. once I. Once I told them, like the very first session, mm -hmm. okay, so you know, so so what's on your mind? Okay, so this is what happened to me. I had I had a number of them that just put their hand up and said, "I, I can't help you. I'm not the guy. I, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy." You know, and uh, I expected that. And um, out of everybody that I've been to, because I've gone to, you know, several. Not one of them has been able to deal with what I've told them, you know, the disturbing things that I've witnessed and they weren't able to help. I mean, you know, some of them gave me, you know, the fashionable, you know, yeah, well, you should, you know, well, you've already wrote a book. That was, that was therapy. Write a letter to your mother and stuff like that. I'm like, you know what? This is way beyond this. Writing a letter to my mother is not going to help me. In fact, one guy said, you know what, I, I've got a, a, a psychiatrist who dealt with uh, POWs from Vietnam who killed children and mothers and stuff like that. He says, I'm going to send, send you to them. And um, he, he was like, sorry, 
not my, you know, that's somebody else's hat to wear, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, th there's nobody that has been able to offer me, offer me anything that was absolutely actually useful, right. you know, other than, you know, being a Christian and my trust and hope in Jesus. I mean, that's the only thing that's given me peace. And, you know, Jesus says, peace I give unto you, not like the world gives, give I unto you. And that's the peace that I've received. You know, that's why I'm able to talk about this. I, I, I have shut my mouth for 45 years. I never talked about this because I never thought anybody would believe me. Because right. once, once I started to recall, you know, what happened to me and my God, what's wrong with me? That's how it all started. It all started with what's wrong with me. I can't talk on the phone. I, I'm socially inept. You know, I, I can't function. You know, I, you know, once I started delving into what really happened and started talking about it and writing it down and I'm able to see, oh my God, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, then I was able to, to, to understand myself better. I don't know if that makes sense, but what, why I do what I do, mm -hmm. you know, because I had friends that think, man, you know, that guy's kind of out there a little bit or, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? You know, what are you talking about? You know, because I have completely different views about things than most people, because my childhood, you know, parameter mm -hmm. is so incredibly different, you know, than others. I mean, I've got no Christmas stories. I've got no birthday stories. Right. You know, I have no normal childhood stories to tell, you know, other than funny stuff that happened at school, which I actually wrote a book about mm -hmm. because there were some funny things that happened to me and I wanted to not focus on all the horrible stuff, you know, but uh, yeah, it's been quite a journey. And the greatest thing that's happened to me other than, you know, you know, Christ giving me peace and all this is that my wife has stayed with me for 36 years. That's and great. she has seen me go through uh, suicide attempts, lockdown at Loma Linda. You know, I mean, she saw me completely unravel where I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, 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 I just have no grasp of, of life, you know, and she stood with me and helped me put all the pieces and build a new life. And it was not easy. It was not easy for me and it was not easy for her. Mm -hmm. And she stuck by me through it all. And I've really, I've really got to give her a, a trophy, <laughs> you know, and we're still together to this day, 30, we'll be on 37 years now. Wow. That's terrific. Yeah. That's Two terrific. kids and six grandchildren. Wow. So what's next for you? Well, um, you know, I, I've been telling my story a lot. And, you know, I said for a long time, you know, I'm not going to be the poster child from for some, you know, charity, you know, do-gooder thing. You know, you think you had a bad story. You should hear this guy, you know, motivational speaker kind of guy. You right. know, I always said I'm, I won't be the poster child for that. But, uh, you know, my heart has since, since uh, softened. And, you know, now that I'm talking... I'm talking about it. You know, a lot of people call me and want to do interviews and, mm -hmm. and things. And I, I'm very glad to be able to, to speak about these things now. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of research on my own about, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of things and, mm -hmm. you know, the spiritual realm and, you know, how to decipher what's, what's us, what's 
the devil and what's God. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and, um, and continue my, my music, continue my music, which is, you know, like I said, one of the greatest therapies for me. You know, I, I probably play probably four or five times a week, you know, which keeps me moving around and I get to see nice places, meet great people and make enough money to stay alive. So I just, I'm, I'm content. So I'm staying the course. That's cool. How can people find you? Uh, well, the book is on Amazon. Like I said, I never, uh, it's just a digital download mm-hmm. um, on, Am- on Amazon, the both books. Um, I've got a couple other books I've written. Uh, that are kind of in editing right now and, you know like that kind of covid helped me kind of fired me up about writing that wow that's another outlet other than sure music absolutely. so i got a couple of uh, books out and and you know if anybody wants to wants to uh you know write me or say hi i i'm always up for somebody calling me and saying hey you know i i, I got compassion for you brother or something like that because that is therapy just having people believe me Mm-hmm. Because, you know, while I was going through this, it was so suppressed. And it was it was as if nobody, I had no value mm-hmm. and no one wanted to help me, that I wasn't worth saving. I wasn't worth rescuing. So that's part of my therapy. I mean, I do get the odd person that says, oh, yeah, you're full of crap and all this. And I'm like, what? yeah, whatever. I've got the PTSD to prove it, you right. know. <laughs> I've got the medical records to prove it, you know, so, you know, but uh, yeah, if somebody wants to throw me a, a line at events, mgagliardi at gmail.com and say hi, that's great. If somebody wants to hire me for music, that's great too. I, 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 I travel anywhere, so. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. I appreciate uh, th- it. Thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, sir. Well, you have a good rest of your evening. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. All right, that was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, I heard him on Coast to Coast, and that's that's where I found him. And, and, and it's an incredible story. You have to read the book. I, I, I read the first book. It's an excellent book. Um, it'll open up your eyeballs, so to say. Tomorrow I'll be back with Karen Clark at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, the usual time. And uh, I do have a pain management appointment tomorrow morning, so we'll be talking about that. Plus, we're going to be talking about grief, uh, you know, because uh, – I know I've lost people. Karen's lost people. Everybody's lost people, right? So we're going to be talking about the stages of grief and uh, how people can get through it. And uh, that'll be tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Uh, we're, we are equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. Uh, please show me some love, some hearts, thumbs up, happy faces. Keep you know, keep me up in that algorithm on Facebook. And uh Hopefully tomorrow I will be out of uh, YouTube jail. I thought I'd be out today, but uh, not yet. So I'm just waiting. Anyway, I'll see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening.